0: our children are exiting now for a time of children's church. And folks, I don't know about y'all, but every Sunday, this line of children just starts to get larger and larger as they're going to hear about God's word in a way that can resonate strongly with our children. So I challenge you, ask your children when you go home today, what did you learn about Jesus? And be careful because they might give you a seminary education. Amen. We've got some wonderful children's teachers that are there with us. But today I want to share with you and invite you, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to find your place in an Old Testament book that if you find the Gospel of Matthew and you do a left-hand turn, it's the last book in the Old Testament that closes out uh, the message of what God had going on to the nation of Israel. The writer of this book is described to be a guy by the name of Malachi. Now, his name in of itself gives us an understanding that there was a special message from God that, that Malachi was given to allow the people of Israel to understand who God was. And I find it interesting that after Malachi finishes, all that God had shared with him to tell the nation of Israel, God goes silent for about a period of 400 years. We call it the intertestimonial period. Where the nation of Israel doesn't hear from God, doesn't know and doesn't have any more prophetic vision, no more minor or major prophets are delivering, thus saith the Lord to the nation of Israel. The word goes silent for this period until we see Jesus come on the scene in the beginning of the gospels account that tell us about the earthly ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus Christ and what the Son of God would do in bringing salvation to all nations. Well, I want to share with you as you find your place in Malachi chapter 2, we're going to examine as we're working our way through this book of Scripture. Uh, we've looked at chapter 1 and we've looked at chapter 2 and almost to the end of chapter 2. And then we're going to hang up in verse 17 for just a moment and we're going to see how does Malachi transition in chapter 2. 2 to chapter 3. And here's what I want to share with you. We're going to be very simple today. So if you brought your pen and you brought your notebooks and you're looking forward to the normal exegetical outline and thing after thing after thing that you're writing down, you're not going to run out of ink today. Okay, uh, But what I hope you will hear today, as you'll hear clearly and be able to focus on what thus saith the Lord and what is going on In these scriptures as I expound upon what Malachi was giving. And I believe that he's giving us four action areas, if you will, for today's church. Four things that we can learn from in perspective to understand what was going on that would cause God to be so angry with the nation of Israel that at the end of all of this, after God is trying to restore them in their fellowship, he would go silent and not speak to them anymore. You ever been in that conversation with with your spouse? Right. Where you had a little disagreement, something wasn't going on, or you didn't do something you were supposed to do, right? I know husbands, we deal with that a lot with our wives not doing what they were supposed to do, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden at the end of the conversation, you realize you got the silent treatment. And then over dinner, nobody talks. During the movie, nobody's saying anything. She won't even hold your hand anymore right now. You know something is wrong, right? We know what we're talking about. doesn't matter how long you've been married or together. You know what the silent treatment is, and you know that unless you do something different, right? Some of you are already looking like, how do I get my foot out of my mouth? I, I know. I did that on the way to church this morning, right? How do I get over the silent treatment? What do I got to We know we've got to do something. We just don't know what's the right thing to do because if I do the wrong thing, this thing could go south real quick, Right? Well, Malachi is sharing with the nation of Israel some actions and some things that they are going to have to do in order to overcome this silent period where God's not going to speak to them for again until they understand what God is doing in their midst. And I think we can resonate with that. So I want to give you those four action areas today of what we see going on as we exegete and work our way through verse 17 and then the first five verses of chapter 3 all kind of pair together. Uh, with us. So let's pick up in the word of God in Malachi chapter 2 and we'll read verses 17 through chapter 3 verse 5 together and then we'll ask God's blessing upon it. So picking up in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired workers, worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of the hosts. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, and Father, we thank you for the very miracle of having a book we can read of your inspired word. Father, we thank you for scripture, and Father, we pray now that you'd open our minds and our hearts, and Give us understanding of these things that cause the silent treatment to ensue on the nation of Israel. Father, it's my prayer today that the church will not be silent, but Father, we will hear clearly from you through your word what actions we need to take to be your children. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. So the action areas for the church, now now most of us live in America, at least here. If you're watching from somewhere outside of America, you're probably familiar with what's going on in our own country. We love the red, white, and blue, but too often, I believe, the, the red and the blue divide our nation. Amen? It's okay, you can say amen here. Regardless of where you stand on the issues in the political spectrum, today's message is not political. But I'm going to share with you, too often we take sides... Much like Israel took and much like Malachi addressed in verse 17 here when he talked about calling the things that are evil good and calling evil good and calling good evil, Isaiah would address that in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. He would say that very thing about what Isaiah is consuming here or transferring the understanding of to us. Too often we get pity patted against blue and red and the reality is I'm going to expose to you in a few moments. God has called the church to be righteous, to be holy. I would use a color to describe that. That color would be white as I share that with you. Look with me again in verses 17 and notice what he tells us about this issue of weariness and what the nation of Israel had been doing for the people. They were pitting one thing against the other and they were dividing themselves equally against the very thing that God had given us. I would call it, they were robed in unrighteousness. Now, when you think about a robe, it's something that we put on. It's something that we wear. It's something that we often parade around in. I don't know if any of you remember some of the Olympics from years ago when the Olympic athlete had had, actually had his suit made out of an American flag, and he paraded it around. He was wearing his country on him. Well, when we were robed in something, like Israel would have understood being robed in righteousness, they were the chosen nation of God. They were supposed to be the people that stood for God. They were supposed to be the people that adhered to the word of God. But here in the beginning of the text, we notice in verse 17 that God brings a condemnation and a judgment against them right off the bat by using a word we describe as, why are you wearying me? The very verse, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You ever have that person you have a conversation with and when they start talking, you already feel your energy just drained from you? They just like suck the life out of you, right? You get wearied. You know what that's like. It's the same old story every time. This person can never get past this issue. It's the same thing. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, here we go again, right? You already know how long this conversation is going to take, right? God is saying the same thing with the nation of Israel. He's been dealing with this nation for so long. He sent the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, all the writings that we have from Isaiah to Ezekiel to Jeremiah to Nahum to Habakkuk, all of them were being told by God what to tell the people. And now it's the same thing. No response, no corrective action, no returning to the Lord to worship Him with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their might, with all their heart as the law had commanded them to do. And here God is finally addressing it with Malachi and saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Just talk, 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 but your actions are different. And they have the nerve to ask back. Now look in this verse 17. Look, look how they respond, right? Same way that that person talks to us all the time. I didn't know I was bothering you, right? Look how he responds. How have we wearied you? How have we wearied him, says Israel? Really? You need to to define that for me? You, You need to ask? You dare even ask, how have you worried me? Is it not apparent that it's the same old thing with you, Israel, over and over? But Malachi goes on by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, this is what Israel was saying. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine Israel, God's chosen people, the nation that God had specifically designed and and created to proclaim Him and to worship Him and to be blessed by Him, to be a a radiant light to the world, it's this very people that is now calling the things that they know are abhorrent before the Lord. They know displease God, but yet those people are starting to call those things good. And God is saying, no, that won't do. You're my people. You can't call evil good and good evil and expect me to stand by and not address that. Malachi asks them and tells them that this position is not right. In Isaiah chapter 5, and I just want to orient you to our slides today, I'm going to give you all the reference verses at the bottom that I'm going to share with you in expounding upon the text to help you understand. If you'll just write those down in your notes, you can go back, and I promise you, if you spend all week just reviewing what I share with you today, you will have spent some good quiet time with the Lord in your personal study. But in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah, one of our major prophets, that writes quite extensively about this issue. Now remember, you've got to understand Isaiah's background. Isaiah was not one of those holy and righteous before thou people that God used. Matter of fact, when God first gets a hold of Isaiah, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. I can't even be in your presence. And then God does something miraculous. And I would argue what he did for Isaiah, he does for every single one of us through the blood of Jesus. The angel took the hot coal off the fire and touched the lips of Isaiah and made it holy and pure and righteous. And later on, Isaiah would overhear a little conversation from the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 where the Lord was speaking and the Lord says, Who shall we send and whom will go for us? Now notice in that scripture, Isaiah isn't called by name. God didn't call Isaiah by name and say, Isaiah, hey, I want you to follow me now. That's not the way it went down. You see, Isaiah heard God having a conversation. And Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Isn't it interesting? I believe too often we wait for God to knock us on the back of the head with a two-by-four to get our attention That God's, Oh, you're really talking to me? You want me to go where? You want me to serve how? You want me to proclaim the gospel? You want me to teach a Sunday school? You want me to serve with the children? Lord, you're going to have to hit me with a two-by-four. I prayed that one time when I was struggling with a call to ministry in my early years. And I remember, my wife is here to testify. She'll say amen to a lot of things, but especially this one. And I was struggling with knowing whether or not God was calling me to ministry. I said, Lord, I I don't know, but I know know this about me, Lord. You're going to have to hit me with a two-by-four to make it apparently clear to me that that's what you want me to do. And in those days, I used to love to run. I know you can tell that now by my physique, but I used to run like a deer. Now, my father would run faster, but I I would run pretty good for 220 plus, right? And on a run one morning that I prided myself on, I loved to run. If you tried to run faster, guess what? All you did was put a carrot in front of me, and I'm going to chase you until I beat you. That was my heart. I would blow your heart up trying to pass me. I mean, that's just, I just, ah, that was it for me, right? And one morning on a run, And uh, guys, ranger guys, they don't like to be, they run pretty good, right? And if anyway, I won't share too much. But on that run, we were doing about a four or five mile run. And somewhere in the middle of the run, my back started hurting really bad. I mean, really bad. And I said, I ain't quitting. No, that ain't going to happen. And we finished the run, and when we stopped, I couldn't walk. True story. They brushed me to the emergency room. They go to the hospital. And I had blown out several vertebrae in my lower back couldn't run now remember I'm, I'm struggling with my call to ministry and i'm chasing some other things in my military career that i wanted to do and to be and to accomplish and i literally had asked god, I said, god you're gonna have to make it known to me and you're gonna have to hit me with a two by four to help me know what you want me to do because i can't do it on my own i believe that morning of that run he did exactly what i asked him to do and he hit me in my lower back and he said okay i'm gonna take that away from you so that's no longer a distractor from you and now I'm going to let you really wrestle with that option is gone in your life now are you going to follow me and be obedient see sometimes God uses those things like he did with Isaiah he gives us a sensing of what was going on and he gives us the choice to say here I am Lord send me and we follow him but some of us need some hard reminding and that's what Malachi is doing here to the nation of Israel that he's trying to get their attention and say what are you doing?" You are a righteous and holy people that are set apart, but you're doing things that are contrary to the gospel. You're battling against these things, and you're calling, most importantly, the things that are evil, good. And the things that are good, you're calling them evil now. Now, I'm sure you're familiar in our current cult context of what's going on in our culture. We have the same battle waging now in our communities and in our societies. Our school systems And our governments are trying to tell us to call what is evil in the sight of the Lord good and become tolerant of those things. Folks, I would argue as Christians, it is not a Democrat or a Republican issue. It is an issue of righteousness. It is an issue of knowing what is right in the sight of God and what is not. And let me give you some verses to understand this issue, to emphasize it's not blue against red. It's really about white. It's really about white. Let me share with you what Daniel says about this issue. When I looked at all the times the word white in Scripture is referenced, what is that term white really referring to? And over and over and over again, it's referring to purity, holiness, righteousness. And right standing with God is what that term righteousness means. And the term white means to be undefiled from something, to be without sin. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, the scripture talks about this issue of white and describes it this way in God himself. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. That's a reference to God Almighty. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. You see, it's not red or blue. It's an issue of white for the church today, of purity and holiness and righteousness, the same way it was for Malachi as he was talking to the nation of Israel. In Revelation in the New Testament, well, pastor, that's all Old Testament, and we're not under that anymore. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Let me share with you in Revelation the only prophetic book that we have in the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, here's what the Word tells us about this issue of white. And then what it means to not be white, to be soiled. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy, thus says the Lord. You see, there's something about not being red, not being blue, not being soiled, but being white and righteous and holy that continues to be a theme of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, in verse 9, it says the following, And after this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and here's the part, clothed in white robes, the palm branches in their hands, and the Scripture goes on to talk about the righteousness that they had received, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You see, when we come to Christ, church, we're not red or blue anymore. While there's nothing wrong with holding on to the values you believe of whatever party, but often I think what we have lost in the church today is our understanding of the true political party we belong to, which is the party of the Lamb. Amen? It's Christ that we are loyal to. It is Christ that we deserve and owe our allegiance to. It is not the Republican or the Democratic Party. And when either one of them go off the rails and are no longer white and righteous, they're wrong, period. But we as the church have been called to be the party of white, of holiness and righteousness. It's the very thing that God was proclaiming. matter of fact, he even goes a little further in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 and says the following. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Join us on Wednesdays. We're talking about heaven right now. There's horses in heaven, y'all. We know because Jesus is going to ride back on one of them. A fiery steed. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of peace. Yes, he's a God of mercy. But he is also a God of wrath, and he's also a God of war. And he will wage war against unrighteousness of every flavor and color. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and on his name was written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and a name by which he is called is the word of God. By which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's good, ain't it? Guess who that army arrayed in fine linen following him on white horses is? It'll be the saints that have been clothed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not red, it's not blue, what the church is called. We've been called to be white, holy and pure and righteous before the Lamb of God. It's time that the church is clothed in white above all things and that the Lamb becomes the party we are most affiliated with. Amen? Let's be robed in righteousness, not in unrighteousness. Therefore, we don't stand condemned before the Lord God. Number two, though, I want to share with you another action. Not only is important what we put on, that we represent and we wear the garments of God and the garments of righteousness, but we also got to understand the railway, if you will, the redemption railway and what God has done. I want to show an image for you real quick. Here's an image of a railroad. Now, we've got to put it in perspective for a moment. Number one, no train ever runs on a track that's not already been laid. Y'all follow me? No train ever runs on a track that hasn't already been laid. You see, the the work has to be done in order for the train to follow through on what it was called to do. And there are certain passages in Scripture in the book that explains to us the effort that God has gone through, like these men in this picture. Notice the labor and the sweat and the hard work of what they're doing to get this track laid so that at one day, at some time, that train's going to be able to fulfill its purpose and run on the tracks that sets its course. But before that can happen, a lot of hard work has to occur. A lot of digging, a lot of preparing the way. Let me share with you what Malachi says to us on this redemption railway that God has gone through great effort to show us and to help us understand what's happening. He says, Behold, I send my messenger in verse 1 of chapter 3, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming Says the Lord of hosts. Now it's interesting that God tells the nation of Israel that he's still preparing something for them. You see, many, the nation of Israel, thought, We're it. It's as good as this ever gonna get right here. You got the best preacher there ever was in this pulpit. None will be any better after, none will be more righteous, none will be more holy. What you got is good, ain't it? And all the people said, Amen. Not so much. But you can imagine that's the position that Israel was taking, that, hey, we've arrived. We're of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, the nation of Israel. We're the chosen ones of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Have a party. But yet, we weren't acting like we were clothed in righteousness. We were acting like somebody different. And God's trying to reveal to them, you know what? Israel, y'all ain't got it all figured out. Matter of fact, I'm still doing a great work amongst you. Folks, I'd argue God's still doing a great work amongst his church today. And he's using you and I to lay the tracks and the framework. Matter of fact, he shares with us, Jesus himself will share to us in the Gospels about what he was referring to when Malachi gave this word. And he says, he will prepare the way before me. If you've got your Bible and want to turn to Matthew chapter 11 for a moment, I want to share with you Jesus' reflection upon what was going on as this man by the name of John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. And Jesus is referring in Matthew chapter 11, he's talking to all the religious folks and all those people that were flocking to all this thing righteousness. And then he's betwixt, if you will, he's a little bewildered. And he asks them in Matthew chapter 11, verses 8 through 15, he confronts them and says, what did you expect to see when you went out into the wilderness?" Was you expecting some elaborate king to come riding on their horse? I think Jesus was was talking a little more in the future about even Israel viewing the Messiah, who he was. You see, Israel expected the Messiah would come and free them from the Roman oppression that they were experiencing in Jerusalem. And they had their hopes that the Messiah that would come would be riding this great steed of war. And he'd come into Jerusalem doing some butt kicking, right? We all know what it's like. I remember I was watching a movie the other night with my wife, and it was one of them sappy little house on the prairie things. And then I got through about five episodes of that. I'm like, look, we need something else. She said, what, you want to watch some killing? I said, I guess so, right? We had to put a, a man movie on, right? Some war, some make it right. Yeah, the hero conquers, comes back for the woman. Everything's good at the end of the movie, right? Well, Israel expected Jesus to come the same way. They expected God's message to be prepared in a certain way that they would understand it. And here's what Jesus says about those who would go to prepare the way, and specifically talking about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verses 8 through 15. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. And in verse 11, he gets right to the heart and leaves no doubt that he was referring to John the Baptist of what John was doing to prepare the way for the Lord's coming and his public ministry to begin and the baptism and all those things that took place. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There's hope for me and you, right? There's hope for us. Least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Folks, a train doesn't run on a track that's never been laid. And the gospel had a firm foundation being laid by not only the prophets in the Old Testament, but also this man named John the Baptist, who would come and behold and prepare the way of the Lord. Matter of fact, so much so, that here's how John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34 describes this event, of John the Baptist preparing the way, laying the tracks for the gospel that would come. And here's what John's own account that we have here comes in John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. The next day he saw, he being John, the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with the water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All God's people said amen. That's good, isn't it? John said I'm laying the tracks, but guess what? The train's coming right behind me, and he's right on my heels. Matter of fact, here he comes. Behold the Lamb of God. The train is pulling into the station. Now, if you are familiar with country music, and I don't listen to much of it, just for the record, y'all don't judge me. How many of y'all listen to country music? You sinners, right? (laughs) Right? Right? But here's a song by the, name of, by the name of Josh Turner. He wrote this, and I thought it was fitting. He says, there's a long black train coming down the line. Corey wanted me to sing this and grab the guitar, and I said, it just we just don't have enough time for that. Feeding off the souls that are lost and crying, and rails of sin only evil remains. Watch out, brother, for that long black train. And I think you get the, the understanding of the rest of the song. There is a black train that runs, but there's also a righteous train. There's a train that John laid the tracks for, and his name is Jesus. And that train runs in one direction. And at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and every ear will hear the conductor pull the whistle on the train. You remember that? As a young kid going through a train station, and all of a sudden the train was coming through, and what did you hear? You go downtown Southern Pines in our area, and you're there having your little ice cream, and all of a sudden you're not paying attention, and the next thing you know, big old train whistle's blowing, and you done dropped your ice cream, Right? Everybody knows what it means when the conductor blows the train. The train's coming. When he blows that horn, the train's coming. And when you're sitting there waiting to get on the train and you're running a little behind and a conductor blows the whistle, that train's leaving the station with or without you on it. And nobody can say he didn't know because he blew the whistle. He told you it was departing. question is, are you on the train? question is, do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you been redeemed of your sin, which were all fallen short? For there is none righteous, no, not one. But have you trusted in the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world? Do you know Him as Lord and Savior? Don't miss the train, because it will leave the station with or without you. But I know God's plan was that none should perish, but all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful redemption railway to remind us. But thirdly, I want to share with you, Malachi was communicating that there was a readiness and a reward that was to be given to those that were on the train that had been clothed and robed with righteousness, that had followed on the train that was running on the tracks that had been properly prepared by John the Baptist and those who came before. And That's the Jesus train. Let me share with you in verses 2 through 4 real quick, this readiness and reward that Malachi makes it apparent and known to those of Israel. Picking up in verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Malachi, you know what Malachi did, y'all? Malachi just did a good old days story. He just went back to the good old days when Israel was pure and they were bringing their offerings in true righteousness, not out of legalism or moral aptitude, if you will, but they were truly worshiping God for what they were. Malachi was reminding Israel what it's going to be like when the great refiner. Now, for context... Not everybody has had a, a great experience with this. Let me share you with an image of what God leads us to understand here through this text of what a refiner's fire is. Okay? If you've never seen smelting or melting or metal forging going on, this image gives a clear understanding of when you take all this other metal, be it aluminum, scrap, silver, whatever it is, and you put that metal into the center pot, and then you put the center pot into a bigger pot, and all around it, It is so hot that it is going to melt all of that metal that you placed in there. A silversmith, for example, would take used items, if you've ever gone through your wife's jewelry box and melted it down to give her back something for Christmas again, right? Anybody else do that? Just me, right? Well, you take all that and the the refiner melts it down and makes something new out of it and burns off all the imperfections. And when he's melting it down, what happens, and most of you know this, but there's a thing at the top of the fire that's called dross all the hairspray and all the other stuff that got on the jewelry over the years, all the corrosion, all the, the sediments, all those things, when they're burnt off, they rise to the top. And then the refiner, the jeweler, he'll take that and he'll scrape off the top layer. And he'll do that repetitively until eventually he looks into the, the pot and when he sees his own reflection in his face, he knows it's completely pure and ready. And what an image of what God's doing in our life, and what Malachi was sharing with Israel, that the refiner wants to melt away and purify all of those things in our life, all the junk, all the gunk, all the imperfection that goes on in our daily life, because we're still in this flesh. But God puts a little heat, a little pressure, and all of a sudden the dross comes to the top, and he starts scraping it away. He heats it up a little more, and he scrapes it away, and he heats it up a little more, and he scrapes it away. Man, what an image of our walk with Christ as the church. Over time, the big chunks of the dross, they come right to the top, don't they? God dealt with those in our early Christian walk. And, and, and sometimes, though, there's a little more that comes up when we thought we got it all. God scrapes it off. Then over a little bit more time in the fire, whoop, a little more rises to the top. Just when you thought it was pure, something else bubbles up, causes some wrinkles in the process. But the refiner continues to clean it and make us white as wool. Folks, that's what sanctification is that big churchy word we use in our process of not only our salvation, our sanctification, and one day our glorification when we're in the presence of the Lord, but the sanctification process is what you see in that pot in our Christian life. We all got dross, some of our dross is deeper than others. Some of us are more refined than others, but there's still dross in us while we're in this world. But it's the refiner, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that purifies and cleanses his church. Let me give you another example of what the scripture refers to when it talks about the fuller soap. My wife and I were driving the other day going to an appointment and and I had her look up see if there's any, Google something for me. And not a whole lot came up, but here's what the scripture says about this issue of the fuller soap. Fuller soap would have been something that in that time frame would have been used to take a soiled garment, a dirty robe, something with impurity, imperfection, something that was unclean. And Israel would have understood that the fuller's job was to take that abrasiveness, that stone, and to scrub it and to get it as clean as humanly possible, to take the dinginess out and bring the whitey white back. That's what the fuller would do. And and, and the scripture is describing for us the process, much like what I believe Isaiah 118 shares with us, to wash something, to cleanse. It's a cleansing agent, a soap. I remember one of my countries I was in one time, and I was having a little tea meeting, a little gathering with some local indigenous population people. And I was sitting there, and I noticed, I had been in the country about eight months at the time, living on a dirt floor, and this guy comes to this meeting. I'm not talking about a hotel room, conference room, y'all. I'm talking dirt floor, mud hut stuff. I've been living in for a long time. And this guy that came to the meeting was living in the same conditions, just in the village right over the hill, right? He comes to this meeting, and he sits down, and I'm almost like blinded by this guy because his whitey whites were so whitey white, I had to put my sunglasses on. I mean, to be in an area we were in, it was so white, I immediately looked at some of my other friends that were with me and said, he ain't like everybody else. Everybody else got dingy whites, like us. He got whitey whites, but I know where he lives, so why does he have whitey whites and we all got brown stuff, right? It stood out to me how bright his clothing was that something unique and special had taken place for that man that was different than the rest of the group. And spiritually speaking, you know that's what happens when we're washed by the fuller soap. When we're washed by the blood of the Lamb, our whitey white becomes so white that others see it and recognize there's something different about that guy's whitey whites than mine. Because I put them on, but my t-shirt's still a little dingy. Right? But his whites were pure white. I believe that's what they thought when they saw Jesus. That's whitey white. That's the righteousness that we're supposed to have. And when we've been washed by the fuller soap, I think Isaiah 118-20 exemplifies this. Here's what Isaiah the prophet was sharing about the blood of the Lamb. And it's the fuller soap that when the blood is applied to our soul, this is what happens. And he tries to convince the audience. He says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Man, isn't it wonderful that the blood of the Lamb, that the blood that Jesus Christ shared on Calvary's cross is the very fuller soap that makes us white as snow, that purifies us white as wool. Come and let us reason together, says Isaiah. Man, isn't it wonderful when we can share and proclaim the gospel with the desire that everyone would be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. What can wash away my sin, says the hymn writer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Folks, that's good, isn't it? Have you been washed by the fuller soap? Have you been refined and are continually being refined by the fuller's fire? Folks, that's the life God has called us to. If you've been refined by the fuller soap, there's the sanctification process in all of us where God is continually scraping off the dross in our life. There's hope for you at the foot of the cross. Don't believe the lie that when you get right, you'll get right with God. You can't get right until you got right with God. You can't get right until He's forgiven you of your sins. And He's clothed you. He's robed you. He's prepared the way for you. He's washed you with the fuller soap and refined you with the fuller's fire. There is no other way. Let me close by sharing this last part of our message in verse 5 of reconciliation and righteousness. You see, our God is a God who is an inclusive God. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that none should perish, Jesus would tell the religious folks of his day, I came to seek and save that which is lost. You see, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I heard not too long ago a man complaining about going to church. He says, I'm not going to go to that church. That church is full of hypocrites. And the pastor stood up and said, Well, sir, I'd argue you're wrong. He says, How's that? He says, Our church isn't full, it's always got room for one more. The reality of it is there's a reconciliation process for us in the gospel. Look in verse 5 of Malachi chapter 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's a lot happening here, but notice in the very first sentence of chapter 5, when he says, then I will draw near you for judgment. Now, often that's misunderstood that we need to have fear that God is going to come and judge us. Here's the reality of it. If we are clothed in the righteousness and the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our sins have been atoned for. Not only your present sin, not only your current sin, but also your future sin. How do we know? Because on the cross of Calvary, your salvation was always in the future. And God chose to forgive you even back then for what you did today and what you will do tomorrow. God will forgive us of not only our past sin, but our present sin and our future sin. It is a sealed deal when the Holy Spirit is taking control of your life. Not that we won't struggle, not that we won't still fall and need to be redeemed or repentant of our sin. You see, that's one of the differences James writes about when he says, I will show you my faith by what I do. He's saying that over time, God is going to get a hold of my heart and transform my wanter to where I don't want to sin anymore. And when I do, it will grieve me. And I will go before the Lord and confess my sin, like that great Psalm 51 of David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, He says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. This is David crying out to God because he knew and recognized that although he was God's anointed, although he had the Holy Spirit dwelling with him, he had committed an absolute blasphemous sin against the Holy Spirit and against God by not only lying with a woman, stealing a husband's wife, causing a child to be born, and then killing Uriah and having him murdered. But Psalm 51 This anointed by God recognizes his needs Says, Lord, forgive me of my iniquities and my trespasses. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And God forgave David, still considered that David was a man after God's own heart. No other man in the Bible, not even John the Baptist, is described that way. A man after God's own heart. A murderer, killing, lying man. Considered to be a man after God's own heart. Why? because the blood of the lamb had cleansed him. So this drawing near for judgment is not that God is going to judge you and I that we should live in that spirit of fear, but he's going to draw with us more shoulder to shoulder with his righteous, judging the unrighteous of this world. Notice the next verse, I will be swift, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. The widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God in his judgment and his wrath is not going to be cast out against all those who are found righteous by the blood of the Lamb, but it will be for those who have refused to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And there are many that Jesus reminds his followers. Didn't you say, Lord, Lord? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we perform these works in your name? And Jesus said, not all who call me Lord, Lord will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's sobering, isn't it? When I read that verse, I just kind of, kind of have to do a checkup. Lord, thank you for saving me. I believe you have. And I know you have because your word is true. And it doesn't fail. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. But it's interesting, we live in a time and a place where even amongst the church, we go about doing this very thing that Malachi was confronting Israel with, Uh, we call good evil and evil good. We call those who stand for righteousness and the inerrancy of the Scripture and the Word of God, we call them immovable. We call them unwilling to compromise. We call them rigid and, and form and conservatives ultra-conservatives, hyper-conservatives, we get all these labels for those who believe in the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And we're expected to conform to what the world wants us to do by changing the views. And I would argue, church, that's not the case for us. We're to stand firm on the Word of God. And when we do alter, when we do fail, and when we do begin to adopt the world's ways of doing things, there is an absolute fear of God that should come over God's church. And here's what Jesus shares about this issue of someone who has seen the miracles, who has tasted in the gift, who has seen the healings, who has experienced for themselves the very miraculous power of the Son of God, but yet they continue to go on living as if nothing has changed in their life. Here's what Jesus said, and I want to share and leave you with this in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24 Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Y'all catch that part? Now Jesus' earthly ministry went on for three to three and a half years. He went around healing the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, all of those miracles, feeding the multitudes, calming the seas, all of those things Jesus did, they saw it. When he cast out the demons of the man that was inhabited by over a thousand demons, they called him legion, the demons. And when he cast out the demons and put them into the pigs, the the gospel account tells us the pigs ran off the, 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 the cliff into the ocean. They drowned. And then the very next verses tell us all the people from the city came and they saw it. And you know what they did? They all fell down at the feet of Jesus and began to worship, right? No, that's not what they did. You know what they did? They said... Jesus, you're not welcome here. You need to go somewhere else because you're killing our livelihood. You've killed all the pigs. How are we supposed to earn a living? We really want you to leave our town. We don't want nothing to do with you. And Jesus left them. That's exactly what had taken place after they saw all the miracles. Jesus would even confront several of his followers later and say, you're not following me because you want to hear truth. You're following me because you want what I can give you. Because you want the healing. You want the blessing. But you don't want the healer. Here's what he says in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been in Tyre and Sidon, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? Now, Jesus was just doing miracles there, healings and all this stuff, feedings. and I mean, he was just there, and now he confronts them. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Man, that's tough, isn't it? Reconciliation and righteousness. How do we get there? How do we, how do we make sure that we are the church that God has called us to be, that we're the people, clothed in white, running on the railway that's been prepared for us, riding on the salvation train of Christ and Christ alone, Scripture and Scripture alone, faith and faith alone, to the God, glory to God alone. How do, we, how do we stay those people? Well, there's only one way that enables us. And if you'll take a look at this image, it's a picture of something we're fairly familiar with now. It's the foot of the cross. You see, when we remain committed to follow what led us on this journey to begin with, which was the blood of Jesus shed for you and me. For he demonstrated his love for us that yet while he was a sinner, it was on that cross that Christ died for you and for me. We could experience his love. How do we stay connected? How do we not fall into these action areas that Malachi was addressing? We've got to stay grounded at the foot of the cross, always looking up to what Jesus has done for us on the cross of Calvary. So I want to invite you with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're at home, the same thing, right where you're at. The Holy Spirit, if He's stirring you, if He's working in your heart, here's what you need to understand how to recognize. God is tugging at your heart right now, and you know you need to be forgiven of your sin, but you can't figure out how. Well, let me tell you the first secret. You can't do it by yourself. Jesus did all that he did to help us understand that salvation comes by no other name but the name of Jesus. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess under the earth and on the earth that Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you repented of your sins that, Lord, forgive me of my sins? The Holy Spirit is stirring your heart. He's calling you into a relationship with him. But he doesn't want just a little bit of you. He wants every bit of who you are. Come to Jesus the way you are, but I promise you this. When you find salvation, he won't leave you in the way you came. He will transform you with the fuller soap, with the refiner's fire, and he will make you a new creation. If that's you today, will you think, surrender your heart to Christ? If he's tugging on your heart, let that be you. And church, God has called us to something very special and very unique in this season of our life. Salvation. Sanctification. And proclamation of His truth. I'd ask you, cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, how are you having me to serve you? Or what is in me that's not pleasing in your sight? Where's the dross in my life that's still in there? I think it's gone, but maybe it's not. Lord, help search me, find me, discover if there's any wicked way that's still within me. So, Father, we thank you for this time and this message. And, Father, we thank you for the constant reminder that we are a special people. We are called to a specific purpose. We are called to be clothed in righteousness, clothed in white, because you have made us holy. Father, I thank you now for the reminder. May we walk strong in the word this week. And Father, we pray for the opportunities to share your love with others around us. There's one here today that's convicted of their sin and their need for salvation. We pray that you extend the grace needed to reach out and receive you as Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.